All right. Romans chapter 13 is, oh, 16 is what we're in. And if you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn to them there, even though scriptures will, uh, will be on the screen if you don't have them with you. Just start my timer. So if you're just joining us today as visitors, we have gone through the book of Romans and we're coming to a close. We're not going to finish it today. We will do that next week. Since I thought it was the last three verses that I see in Romans 16, I thought it was a great a great Christmas message uh, when we think about this time. The title of this morning's message, I decided to call it Evidence for the Efficiency of This Epistle. And so there's just some thoughts I'd like you to just think about as we go through these remaining verses. There's quite a lot of different topics I still don't understand how preachers can go through Romans 16 in one sitting. Um, as I listen to more and more preachers on this passage, it's evident that when they, some just read a verse and then it's self-explanatory, I like to just delve a bit deeper and get something out of at least every verse. And that's why it's taken three years to get through Romans. Verse 17 says, now I urge you, brethren, I urge you. So he's imploring people, he's persuading people, brethren, brothers and sisters, fellow Christians. It says, keep your eye or observe them, mark them. Keep your eye on those who cause dissensions, or you could say divisions, and even hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. And so we're talking about a particular kind of people that we find in the church and there's a name that we have for them, there's multiple names for them because notice how they're doing one thing or a couple of things, they're actually causing dissensions. They're making hindrances. And you don't do that by just sitting in a pew and being quiet. You don't cause dissensions by that. You actually have to speak up to cause a dissension, to sow discord. And for some, they manage to get into a place where they're able to teach people. We understand that the church in Galatia that where Paul had set up, he started off with the true gospel that says, faith in Jesus Christ alone is what saves you. But then some people came along. Somehow they had an influence, and for some reason the people in Galatia started believing them, started listening to them, trusting in what they were saying. And what were they saying? Well, they said, yes, faith in Jesus Christ is what you need, but you also need to follow or to continue to follow. And for Gentiles, you had to start to follow the Jewish customs. 
even the ceremonies. And that, for the men, oh, that involved some pain. Because that meant you had to be circumcised. If you weren't circumcised, man, you're not going to heaven. You might believe in Jesus, but you didn't do that thing. So, And today, we, we continue to bring up things where we add to the gospel and we change the gospel. We call them false prophets, false teachers. But these verses tell us how to spot, how to spot a false prophet. But I just thought I'd take some time to say or to mention what is not a false teacher? What is not a false prophet? Because, oh my goodness, um, I don't know whether online... The internet makes it worse. Uh, the internet definitely makes it worse. But we don't do ourselves with any favors where we have these, we have access to millions of teachers around the world and they disagree with us in a particular doctrine. And we could say that is contrary to Paul, what Paul's teachings here, it says in verse 17. But we don't discern or we don't distinguish between what Paul is really saying here. Because he's not saying that if we disagree in things like eschatology, or if that name is unfamiliar to you, that the study of end times and how it's all going to pan out, that that person that disagrees with that teaching something contrary to what I believe is a false teacher. I mean, then we can go into all sorts of subjects like ecclesiology or how we do church. We could even talk about people that believe in loss of salvation. They believe if you do enough bad things, then there's no way you're going to heaven. And that eternal life gets changed to temporary life and you're no longer your ticket is taken away from you. I think Paul is talking about here with things that involve or relate to or associate with salvation, the gospel. If there's something that hinders the true gospel, the true gospel from being proclaimed, then that's a problem. It's just disturbing when I hear people that I listen to and they're being, they're being told they're a false teacher just because there's a particular doctrine that we call is non-essential to agree on, non-essential to, to believe because I have never met, I have never listened to a person who believes 100% of the things that I believe in. Never. So what does that mean? I'm a false teacher or are they a false teacher? And then the confusion goes from there. So we're talking about the gospel, people perverting the gospel. I think it's very hard these days to allow false teachers into local congregations. Because really, that's all that matters here. Who cares about what people are preaching on, online? There's always going to be lies taught. 
It's up to the Christian to discern what's truth and what's not. But just beware. Just beware. For such men, Paul describes in verse 18, he says some nasty stuff about them. Such men are slaves. They're slaves. Remember, we're all slaves, by the way. We're just slaves of different things. There can only be two things that we're slaves of. And you can't be both. You've got to be one or the other. And so if you want a reminder of this, Romans chapter 6 is the chapter to study. And uh, that's available online if you want to listen to those. You're either a slave, not of our Lord Jesus Christ, as Paul says in verse 18. Romans chapter 6 says you're a slave of sin. And that resembles what Paul continues to say in verse 18. It says, they're a slave of their own appetites. Why are they doing this, what they do? Well, it's for some sort of self-gratification, some sort of self, whether it's self-improvement, whether it's, whether it's more, whether it's power, whether it's money, whether it's pride, more pride, more acknowledgement. Because you've got to ask yourself the question, why do these people feel the need to make their way into the church and to cause dissensions and hindrances? What causes someone to do that? Because we know they're not a believer. It says here, they're slave of their own appetites and by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. What I'm asking myself is, and what I'm asking you this morning is, What's the motivation of these people? Just think about it. What's the motivation when these people come in? Now, the thing is, just beware of them because there is opportunity to be deceived by them. But on that note, it's very hard to be deceived in a local church if your pastor is teaching from God's Word. Unfortunately, that's a rarity these days. More preachers are just telling the story, plucking a verse out of context usually, applying that to their story, telling a few jokes, and then that's the sermon. If you have a pastor that's preaching and teaching from God's Word, it's very hard to be deceived. And so how do we make sure we're not deceived? Well, the answer is, KYB, know your Bible. Don't just put it on the shelf and bring it out once a Sunday and maybe once a year or not at all. Read it, study it, meditate on it, know it inside out. This will mature your faith dramatically, particularly if you decide to go that further mile and talk to people that have a problem with this book. Ah, we're talking about the area of apologetics. If you really want to mature your faith, get into apologetics where you are justifying people's, um, not justifying, 
I guess justifying your, the reason that, of the hope that you have, as we find in the New Testament, as Peter writes, I think it is. But I don't use, like to use the word arguing, but sometimes that happens. I guess what I'm trying to get to say, getting to that area where you decide to dismantle another person's belief that you know is contrary to that. Like we can choose to do that. For instance, I choose myself in my somewhat spare time to have mostly online conversations for me because that means I can do it whenever I want and whenever I have time to do it with people that, I don't know, for instance, believe in, uh, in a different gospel, believe that, well, yes, you have to have faith in Jesus Christ, but you've got to do something else. Mostly these days, it's you've got to be baptized. You've got to make sure you're baptized, otherwise you don't get that ticket. That ticket's not exactly yours. You actually haven't been made new yet, even though you believe in Jesus Christ. Only once you get baptized, that's when it happens. And I decide to have these arguments. And they, people, they bring Scripture. They use Scripture to justify their beliefs. And so you've got to really think. You've got to really study the Word to, you know, dismantle that kind of belief system. But they do deceive. Hearts of the unsuspecting. I'll just put it bluntly. Hearts of the immature Christians. The unknowledgeable Christians, the ones who don't actually study the word, study the scriptures. Now, on that note, one thing I want to say and just briefly talk about that comes along with false teachers, and it's the idea of, it's not an idea, it's, it's, what's, it's what's happened, it's, it's what's happening, it's what, even what happened to me. And I think probably the majority of this congregation, the more I get to know your stories, you've been involved in a situation where you might now experience PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, from what has happened to you in the church. And what's our response or what's the usual response to when something bad happens to us within the church? It's usually we just walk away from the church. We want nothing more to do with the church. This is my dilemma. And if you know someone that has walked away from the church, just think about the, the logistics, the reasoning, the mindset that's, that's going on with this. Now, we are told, we're warned in Scripture that there are going to be people that sneak up, sneak in to our congregations, and they're going to try to, as Romans just said, cause disharmony, cause disunity. Unity is a powerful thing. I'd hate to know the statistics when you look at the Christian church in the world today, how many churches have actually complete unity. I know for this church, that was more than a decade where there wasn't unity. I'm glad to say that's now changed. I believe we are in complete unity here. It wasn't always like that. 
And I wonder what that statistic is. My point is, we're warned that these people will come in. And more than likely, we've been hurt by someone in leadership because usually we're pretty tough and another Christian, we thought, ah, they don't know what 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 they're thinking. We'll just ignore them. But when it comes to someone who has influence in the church and they hurt you, well, that's a different story, isn't it? Who are we to say that is there a chance they have come into the church with the goal of sowing discord, of ruining what we have here? We, we fully we don't know. Remember, Paul classes them as non-believers. Now, be careful on what you do because the parable of the wheat and tares, we're told not to worry about them. Okay, we're not to, as in, judge, oh, is he a wheat or a tear? Mm, I wonder what she is. We're not to do that. God will take care of that. But there are some practicalities that we should do, that we should guard ourselves against in being aware of their presence. But the point of this is, this should not be a good excuse. It's probably the worst excuse. We are running away from something that hurt us, even though we were warned from the start that more than likely it would hurt us. Go figure. But as I said, I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure that uh, we'll get into those people that are on your mind, though, that you know, but Tim, I wasn't hurt by a false teacher. I was hurt by someone with influence. We'll get into that soon. Back to my application before, how can we not be not deceived? How can we, can we not be deceived, rather? Be a Berean. And what that means is look up Acts chapter 17, verse 11, if you don't know what a Berean is. Because in that passage, it says, these Men, well, these people were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word, they received the scriptures, the preaching of it, um, with all readiness of mind. They were ready to listen, but they also searched the scriptures daily. They did it daily, not just weekly, not just monthly. Whether those things were true on what they were being told, whether those things were, were true, And so for a congregation to grow, I'll go on one more rant before I move on. The role of a pastor is to teach and to warn. That's primarily. A pastor teaches and warns. It's sad where we can't have conversations or where pastors can't have conversations with their own congregation because of what some marvelous theologian online on the other side of the world says that is contrary to what your own pastor says and there's no conversation. That's the sad thing. There's no conversation about it. 
why shouldn't we be having a conversation about this? About checking to see if those things are in God's word. Are true. I should be having more conversations. All pastors should be having more conversations with their congregation, with their church, today more so than 2,000 years ago. Why? Because we all have access, instant access to millions of teachers out there. We all have our favorites. Please don't let them come between you and your local congregation. Be open to have the conversation. And so I highly encourage you. I actually thank the people that do send me, they send me links to teachers. Um, and and we, we manage to have conversations about it when we can. And then I bring it up in, in messages when I can as well, just so everyone's aware. But if there's something that you see online and it's contrary to what I'm teaching here, then let's have the conversation. Let's have iron sharpening iron, shall we? But don't be afraid to do it. Don't be afraid. Um, and on that note, if you do send me a link, by the way, and the video is like one hour, two hours long, please let me know if specifically at what mark you want me to start listening. And if you say all of it, more than likely I won't get a chance to do it. Um, but if you want to check what I think versus on what someone else is saying, please, uh, if it's an hour long, tell me at the 37-minute mark, this guy says that. What do you think of that? Now, verse 19, everyone has heard about your obedience, so I rejoice because of you. Everyone, remember, this is Rome, Italy, Paul hasn't been there yet, and he's saying everyone's heard about you guys. Wouldn't that be great for everyone to have heard about Fraser Coast Baptist Church and their obedience to the word, their obedience to Jesus Christ? What a reputation to have. And so Paul rejoices because of you. But he also says, but I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. Why does he have to say that? He says, I've heard about your obedience, but, is there always a but? But I want you to be wise about what is good, innocent about what is evil. And I think this is a good thing. I think we can be obedient through each week that we live our lives with Christ. But at the same time, there are things that we do that might be, I don't know, not wrong or not right, not good or not evil, but it might be questionable. And so I think Paul's saying just those things, maybe, you know, that place that you go to on Friday night, maybe is that a good place to go? to hang out. It's not good that you go there. It's not evil that you go there. No, things like that. Maybe. I think we can learn from this verse in regards to the decisions that we make. Now that reputation, I want to talk about that for a few moments. This is a stat that I pulled up this morning from the drum. 93% of people are influenced by online reviews. Can you relate to that? No? Oh, wow. I do. I, I look at the online reviews now. And not just that, I look at which ones could be bots and which ones could be real. 
Because that's a discernment that we have to make. 93%. If you buy something online, I'll relate that to us spiritually. 100% of people, I believe, 100% of people are influenced by our witness. Or I will revert that and say lack of witness. And so those people that are talking to you about that aren't false teachers, that have pretty much probably betrayed you in the church, more than likely a pastor. Lord willing, I hope I'll never do that. But can't promise. I strive every day to not. But I know there have been some people in the past that have. Our obedience to Christ matters. What we do during the week matters. I think 100% of people are influenced by not just our testimony, but what happens when we lose that testimony. The ones that you're trying to preach the gospel to, they look at you, does your actions match your words? It's for all of us, particularly those, even more so for those that are in leadership roles in the church, that have ministries in the church where you are trying to influence people. If I go this week and do all sorts of crimes and I get put in jail, no longer will you look at me in the same way. My influence would have gone. It's gone. We all influence people, some more than others. Your family members, those who are not believers, your friends, your colleagues, your neighbors. We're all looking for opportunities to influence them so they will see the real Jesus Christ. Verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. I have a question there. When or how? The reason I ask that question is because if you read that, the start of that verse, read it again to yourself, there's some problems with it. Well, first of all, do you see the contradiction? God is a God of peace. But use the, look at the verb that he uses. God will crush Satan. Is that really peaceful? But to explain why, and we're talking about the God of peace next week because he mentions it in verse, I think it's verse 25. Really, the kingdom, when we talk about the overall kingdom of God, and we're talking about the time where everything will be fulfilled, whether we'll have our glorified bodies, we'll be in heaven, there'll be no more of that bad stuff, no more curses, no more sin, no nothing. That can only be a place. It can only be truly peaceful when Satan is crushed. Now the other dilemma we'll see is Paul doesn't know what he's talking about. Paul was an apostle of Jesus Christ writing half the New Testament for us. He should have known better. Because if I'm, a, if I'm in the church in Rome right now reading this, or more than likely I couldn't read it. Someone was reading it to me. Because... The majority of us were illiterate. 
He says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. I'm on my de- I read that in my 20s or my teenage years. I'm on my deathbed and what's happening? Why hasn't this happened yet, Paul? And so this is where the translators, I think, make a big mistake. Our English translators. This is a case of not when, but how. So when we look at that word, will soon... It's not, it's going to happen straight away. It's not going to happen soon. And by the way, most of the translations that I looked through this week believe that. So when you look at the, I think it's the, definitely the message. When you read the message, it indicates that it's going to happen soon, as in a time, chronologically. NIV maybe. KJV. What is, uh, that says uh, shortly, I think, shortly, okay? But maybe a better word could be, I've had to say quickly, it's not the better, it's a better word, but not a great word, quickly. So when it does happen, it will happen quickly. It's a how will the God of peace crush Satan in, time, in, in reference of time. How? How will he do it? He'll just do it quickly. He'll do it shortly. He'll do it um, through the click of the fingers. For those online who can hear that. (laughs) And then the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Um, Just stay tuned for that because that's really interesting. And if you have your Bibles open, I'd love to get, I'm just going to ask you to show your hand soon. Quickly, um, in closing, verse 21, Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. We all know who that is, right? This is the, the protege of Paul, who's named after First and Second Timothy, his final letters that he wrote. Uh, and so do Lucius and Jason and Sosipita, my kinsmen. Now, some people think this Lucius is the Luke, the Apostle Luke, that, we, that the Gospel of Luke is, uh, he wasn't an apostle, the Gospel of Luke that was his account and the one who wrote the book of Acts. It was pretty much Paul's personal doctor, physician. They think it's him, but I, 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 don't, I don't think so as much. Um, the reason I don't think it's actually Luke, the guy we read about in the Bible that was accompanying Paul for a lot of his journeys, uh, is because of the word kinsman. I believe, and this is just interpretation, of course, we can't actually prove it, the evidence points towards these three guys being Paul's kinsmen. And when we look at that word kinsmen, more than likely it means fellow Jews. Luke was not a Jew. He was a Gentile, born a Greek, we, uh, we think. So um, I think the other guys that scholars believe this is, is, if you want to do your homework, Luke of uh, Laodicea, a bishop of Laodicea, if you're writing notes and you, that fancies you. Uh, interests you. Jason, um, he's mentioned in scripture. I think it's Acts 17. This is a, a guy's house that the church met at. And Sisipitar is mentioned, I think it's Acts 20. Acts 20, not in that form of name. Maybe Sopitar is a different form, but theologians think uh, that's the, the ones Paul's talking to. So notice Contrast this with the start of Romans 16. Romans 16, we're, uh, we're saying, uh, Paul's saying, okay, greet these people that are in Rome, 
now Paul writing the letter in Corinth and saying, these people that are with me now um, greet you, give their greetings. Um, verse 22 is interesting. I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, greet you in the Lord. Wait, wait, wait. Didn't, didn't Paul write the epistle? Isn't Paul the apostle, the author of this book? And the answer is yes. But if you're unfamiliar with how these books came to be about, um, so an atheist might say that. What would you say that if an atheist says, hey, you're saying Paul wrote this book, but then it says, I, Tertius, wrote this book, wrote this letter, wrote this epistle. Do you know how to answer that? Well, the answer is Paul more than likely on one occasion used a scribe to um, write down what Paul was saying. So Paul dictated his thoughts and Tertius was the guy who wrote and he had an opportunity to uh, get himself in the book with or without Paul's permission. I don't know. But uh, greet you in the Lord. I, Tertius, decided to do that. Uh, Gaius, verse 23, whose hospitality I and the whole church here enjoy, sends you his greetings. Erastus, who is the city's director of public works, and our brother Quartus send you their greetings. Uh, Gaius is the one mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, um, who was the, one of the people that, one of the few people, rather, that Paul baptized in the church in Corinth. So obviously he's serving the Lord in a, in a mighty and influential way by hosting the church. Uh, Erastus. I used a modern-day version here. I forget which one it is. He's the city's director of public works. Now, your version just might say city treasurer or something like that. He's a treasurer. I like this one, director of public works, because there's historical uh, artifacts that have Erastus on uh, the pavement on a sign that says something along the lines of this pavement was, could only happen because of Erastus, the city, uh, I think it says director of public works or something along those lines. Uh, without his uh, generosity, um, this wouldn't have happened. So pretty much he paid for the pavement, whatever it was, to, to be laid down, and it's still visible today, okay? And Quartus, no idea who he is and why he gets a mention. Haven't done enough research for it. Maybe you might like to, but he's a brother, which we know, sister and brothers, um, we can call each other sisters and brothers. We're spiritual family. So they send the greetings. Now, read that verse again. And this is a question that you might like to ask a friend of yours, if you have one that is a non-believer, particularly an atheist. If you have a friend that's an atheist, they obviously believe that this book is made up. Just a bunch of made-up stories, right? They have to come to that conclusion. Why go to all the trouble of naming names if this is fiction? What is the point if Paul knows that he's trying to deceive all these people into believing these lies? What's the point of mentioning all these names that we've read about in chapter 16? Particularly when we can know they're true by historical evidence, such as artifacts of those of Erastus. Erastus, just a, a 
call him a politician or whatever you want to call him, but having an influence in the community, not necessarily a minister in the church, but he gets a mention. What's the point of doing that if it's just made up? See what answers you get. If this is all fiction, why go to all the trouble of being, of having this much detail in his letters? Now the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all, amen. And you say, wait, didn't we just read that three verses ago? And now turn to your Bibles if you have them with you. And I'm just curious, show of hands, whose Bible does not have verse 24 in it? Anyone in this room? That's for you. All right. It has in brackets, okay. Some Bibles don't have this verse. And so... Mostly they're more modern-day versions, even though some of them do include it in, such as the NASB. But why have some modern versions taken out this verse? This one might be of interest to you. Um, a simple scribal error, we say. In other words, Paul writes this letter through Tertius. How does that letter get copied? Someone has to write it out again, right? We call them scribes. We call them copyists. There are more than likely high probability that a scribe has made an error. Now, that error could have been purposefully made. I think it was purposefully made. I think um, Someone might be looking at verse 20. I have it here, actually. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And maybe some scribe took the privilege that was or was not necessarily his to take and uh, said, oh, verse 20, I don't think that fits well. I see other, I look at other letters of Paul and it's more towards the end, but I don't want to, put it toward, uh, at the end of verse 25. Let's just put it right after the last greeting. Now, lots of questions that come out of that scenario. Ultimate question would be, oh, was the scribe inspired by God, was every scribe inspired by God to copy each letter that has been produced? I think you'd have a hard, hard time in saying yes. And so my, my, my question then, why can't there be scribal errors when we come to the Scriptures? All Scripture is inspired by God. I personally believe, yes, the original manuscript was inspired. I don't believe we have it today. But does that mean I can just toss this Bible out and not believe it? No, of course not. And that's a whole other study on what inspiration actually means and the effects of inspiration. But just think about that. Um, the story is the earliest manuscripts don't have verse 24 in. Okay? Um, the King James Version has this in, but they're using a later manuscript the majority of early manuscripts that were translated 
from that language into English. Um, majority don't include verse 24, but there are a minority that don't include verse 20. It's either one or the other. Some do both. Go figure, but that's pretty much if you come across someone that argues with you about the legitimacy and accuracy of the scriptures, because this is not the only verse in scripture that, uh, that seems to contradict other things. And by the way, on that note, please don't think modern day versions are trying to take away um, the message of Jesus Christ, which is just common belief. You know, when I read my NIV and they say, oh, this verse has been taken out, but the King James Version has it. Oh, they must be trying to subtly um, diminish God's grace out of this. We know that's not true in this context because verse 20 includes it. Look at verse 20. It still says, The grace of Jesus Christ be with you all. It's just a, a farewell greeting when we come to that. All right, homework with this passage. Always beware of those sowing discord in the church. That's a give me. Um, number two. Remain hopeful. We win the battle in the end. Satan will be crushed. He's still the God of this world, the prince of this world, other scriptures say. Our world is still fallen. It's not going to be hunky-dory, this whole walk we have with Christ. It's not always going to be easy. More than likely, it's going to be hard. But remain hopeful. We win the battle in the end. And just remember, it is a battle not against flesh and blood, it's against spiritual beings. And then number three, maybe you might have an opportunity to ask a non-believing friend the question of historical accuracy. I'm over time. Let's pray and thank the Lord for what he's doing in through us. Father God, we want to take this time just to thank the Apostle Paul. We know he wasn't always one that was favorable in your sight, particularly when he was going around killing Christians as a Pharisee. But Lord, you had other plans for him. You knew he would accept your revelation when you blinded him on the road to Damascus. And we just want to thank you for the truth that you imparted to him so we could still apply it to our lives today. Help us as we ask for help each week to be obedient to the holiness of Jesus Christ. Help us always be vigilant, aware of the influence our witness has on others, particularly those that are non-believers in this current stage of life. And help us, Lord, if we're in a time of discouragement maybe even suffering from PTSD, a time where our focus is not real, really aligned to you, rather it's distracted with the things of this world. Help the hope that we have to be firm in our minds and hearts. And whether that means reading more scriptures, studying it more regularly, Father, just uh, counsel us in on an individual way, Father. That's our desire. That's our plea. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. God would finish with a song.